Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Ben Blakey. It's Saturday, January 15th, 2022. Picture yourself going out to a fancy restaurant. And when I say fancy restaurant, I'm saying picture the kind of restaurant that you're probably only going to if it's a birthday or an anniversary or some kind of real special occasion. Pick yourself, picture yourself walking through that restaurant. If you close your eyes and imagine it and you consider the surroundings, right? if you look at some of the walls, what are they going to be covered with? They're going to be covered with wine bottles, right? Carefully arranged and displayed. And that's just one of the the symbols of, of luxury and lavishness, right? That that fancy restaurant is going to have, All right? If you go out to uh, McDonald's or Taco Bell tonight, while you're standing in line to order your chalupa, you're not going to see any wine bottles on the wall. Because even in our time, in our uh, restaurant scene, right? You you think of that as a picture, really, of, of wealth or of something nice, something fancy, something abundant, right? And really, it's that picture of abundance that we want to think about as it's going to connect to our reading today in John two. Today, for our New Testament portion, where right now we're basically going through the life of Christ in chronological order, we're in John chapter two, and we're going to read about Jesus's first miracle. Now, this is a miracle that you're probably all familiar with. Jesus turns water into wine. But what does it mean? That's where there's a few things that I want us to think through. I mean, on one basic level, uh, Jesus is just mercifully providing for uh, this young couple, right? To run out of wine at their wedding celebration, that would have been a big social faux pas. I mean, that would have been such a bad thing that it really would have followed them around for the rest of their lives. And Jesus, again, his mother kind of feeling that need and in bringing it to Jesus, he simply provides for their physical needs. I think that's just one takeaway we can get from this is, whoa, Jesus provided for this person's need. He had mercy and compassion on them. I I can trust the Savior to do the same uh, to me. Also, it's clear that he is showing his glory in this miracle. That's what it says in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And even just think back to John chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory is the idea. Well, now he's showing his glory through this miracle. And that's where let's get into the miracle a little bit more. How does it manifest his glory? Well, he turns water into wine. One way that manifests his glory is really his power of creation. And here he's not creating something out of nothing necessarily, like creation in Genesis is the Latin phrase says ex nihilo, out of nothing, but he is creating something, all right? Going from water to wine, that is a very substantive change, right? You you can't just, you know, pop open a packet of some kind of powder, drop it in the wine and capiche, there it's wine. No, you're changing the chemical composition 
of what is there. It's really an act of creation that Christ does here. And also, I think it even connects with our understanding of creation, even as we wonder, you know, well, how old is the earth? And I think it makes a lot of sense that when the earth was created, it didn't look like it was brand spanking new. It looked like it had been around. And even if like I'm not super personally, I'm not super familiar with with wine. I don't know much about it. But one thing I do know is, you know, people talk about the age of wine or it aged like a fine wine, right? We think about the age of wine. And this is pretty good wine that Jesus makes. So I'm sure if you'd done chemical testing on this wine, it wouldn't say, oh, this wine has been around for uh two minutes. No, it would have looked old. It really, you see the power of Christ's creation here uh, through this miracle. But also, you should get a sense in this miracle of abundance. It says that these were jars that held 20 to 30 gallons, and they filled them up to the brim. You start thinking through, you know, these six jars, really, it'd be the equivalent of about 600 bottles of wine today. And if you think of it, like it says, this is good wine. If you were to go out and buy 600 bottles of fancy wine, the kind of wine you would find at that fancy restaurant you were thinking about uh, at the beginning, right? that's going to be quite a bill. We're, we're looking at potentially even tens of thousands of dollars to buy that wine. And you think about, okay, how many acres of vineyard would be needed to produce that many grapes uh, and how much time, right? It all kind of adds up, but Jesus does it in a moment. It's power, it's creation, it's abundance, it's Jesus, and it is his glory. And I think there is some symbolism meant to, uh, you know, that these were stone jars used for the Jewish rites of purification, right? And that the picture of Jesus' abundance and even... I think of how this foreshadows something we'll see later in John when Jesus says, I came, they might have life and have it abundantly. Uh, really, I think the picture is of, of spiritual blessings. Uh, this is not something we should twist and turn into a health and wealth, prosperity gospel, believe in Jesus, and you'll have abundantly beyond whatever you could ask or think of right here, right now in this life. But I think it is speaking of the richness of what Christ has to offer us through his glory. Even just think of passages even in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 55, come to the waters, come and drink by wine and milk without money, without price, right? Just that picture of this rich feast that Jesus is uh, inviting us to. So as you consider this parable, which on its face, yeah, I, I remember that. That's the first miracle. Jesus turns water into wine. View it really as an opportunity to see the glory of Christ. And that's a glory we can still behold today. Jesus is still providing an abundant life that we can enjoy right now, today, and so let's worship Jesus as we see what he does here in John chapter 2. The other big thing that he does in this chapter is he cleanses the temple. And he is upset that they have made his father's house a house of trade. That they had turned something um, that was meant for worship and really turned it into a place of business. And you get a sense that 
while there was some legitimacy to providing some service to people that uh, instead of bringing an animal on this long pilgrimage, we're going to bring money in exchange for an animal. While there should have been some legit service to that, where it was being done and how it was being done was the wrong way. And Jesus uh, comes in, and what a shocking thing that would have been for him to to do what he does and drive out people with a whip. You, you can get a sense of why the Jews say it's not totally unreasonable for them to say in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Um, that's a kind of a valid question when they consider they didn't really know who Jesus was at this point. He hadn't really done much publicly at this point. And Jesus responds, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. He's challenging them, destroy this temple, speaking of his body. And he really predicts his resurrection. Another way we see the glory of Christ, that he calls his own shot here right from the beginning. And we start to see some people respond, but this is also another key concept we'll see throughout the gospel of John in verse 23, when it says many believed in his name, when they saw the signs he was doing. And then when it goes on to say, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. From there, we also get the idea that that there are different senses of belief in the Gospel of John. There is a belief that is valid and leads to salvation, and then there's a belief that seems kind of phony or counterfeit. And we're seeing that from the earliest stages in the Gospel of John. But hopefully that picture of abundance is one that will stick out and really help us to glorify Jesus from our reading today. As we go to the Old Testament today and look at Job 32 through 34, we meet kind of a new character that's speaking for the first time. Elihu is going to speak and he's going to rebuke Job's three friends. He's going to rebuke Job and uh, he's very interesting character and you find a lot of different opinions about Elihu and I think sometimes we can miss the point in that and just trying to think, okay, is this a good guy or a bad guy? When sometimes there's mixed things that are said. And I think that's true of Elihu. I think just the the anger that he shows and um, the way he comes across, I, I don't think is exemplary. Uh, even in how he rebukes Job, he's pretty firm with Job. And it's one thing for God to come in and, and say some pretty strong words. I think it's another thing for this young man too. And I think it does sell short some of the grief that Job is experiencing. But also, I think he does touch on some of the things, though, that Job has said that are a bit uh, problematic. Even as he, uh, in verse 12 of chapter 33, starts talking and says, Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? Uh, You know, he's starting to say, hey, Job, you're starting to kind of contend with God. And that's not uh, what you should be doing. And so we start to see Elihu, I think, touching on some of these things that will become clearer as God shows up and speaks later. Or again in chapter 34, when he says, For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. And I think saying, you know, as he's really taking God to account, saying God is doing this to me. God is taking away my right. Uh, While well, he lays it on, I think a bit thick 
in points. I think he's starting to touch on some of the ways Job has erred in his response. And again, I want to remind us, like we said yesterday, let's be careful that we don't come away from this book judging Job. Uh, We should come away from this book with Job judging us, because clearly scripture holds him up as an example. And while he is not perfect, uh, neither are we. And I think most of us can clearly say, I have done a lot worse in my response to suffering that was a lot less than Job's. So may we not respond by, well, I've studied the book of Job and I know all the answers and I know where every one of these guys were right and wrong. No, let's shut up and listen and let's learn. Let's try to observe some things, but let's do so with an attitude of humility. And it's really going to be exciting as we get into next week, uh, Elihu's final chapters, and then really God is going to show up. I can't wait to see that uh, next week. But today, let's remember just that picture of abundance in Uh, the first miracle of Jesus, and really how it shows his glory and how we can trust in that and really experience the abundance that Christ has to offer us through him today. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.